So, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow and he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he then went down to Antioch. After he'd spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren rode exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And Father, we humbly ask that by the power and assistance of your Holy Spirit, you'd help us to understand every thought and intent behind why you inspired this part of your living and powerful word and that it would be your Holy Spirit who prepares us and the one who is ministering to us and speaking to us, that he would be our teacher and we'd hear what you want to say to us. So bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Now, how important is spiritual progress to your life? It should honestly be something that every one of us will consciously pursue, whether it's for our own spiritual life, that we see the value of making progress, or honestly, whether it is in some way helping someone else in their spiritual life to make progress and to move forward spiritually. Making spiritual progress is important to God, and it should be to us. Uh, it should be something that we recognize as part of God's plan and will. The spiritual life in the Bible is often referred metaphorically as a walk. And when we just think of what the word walk means, the word walk implies you're not standing still. You're making forward progress. You're taking steps in a forward motion. That's what to walk implies. In fact, throughout the word of God, the Bible speaks directly, specifically about making progress. We're told that we are to grow in certain places. We're told in other locations that we are to go on to maturity, that we're to reach forward to those things which are ahead. And this section that we're going to look at this morning, I see spiritual progress being made in various different ways, and hopefully it encourages us to make progress personally and to seek to help others to make progress as well. You'll notice verse 18, this section opens by saying to us there, verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. Now, remember, we saw last time in Acts chapter 18 as we began, Paul spent about a year and a half to two years planting or establishing 
a new church in the city of Corinth that he had went to. He's during the end of a second missionary journey and he went to Corinth and he shared there about Jesus Christ faithfully and eventually after being faithful and sharing the Lord continuously, eventually the Lord kind of brought a spiritual breakthrough. And we saw many then began to be believed and, and get baptized in the name of Christ there in Corinth. And as people started to get saved, a work of the Lord was unfolding. And yet then Paul remained there in the city for an extended period of time. He didn't move on as quickly as he normally would. He stayed for a period of time to kind of help the new believers grow and mature. Verse 11, remember, told us there in Acts 18, 11, that he continued there in Corinth a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, trying to disciple the believers to become more stable spiritually and become really fruitful servants of Christ in the midst of that dark city of Corinth they were living in. Yet the time came for the next step, if you would. The time comes for the next season in Paul the Apostle's ministry and his activity. That's why verse 18 says he remained there a good while in Corinth. Then, verse 18, he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him, and he had his hair cut off at Centria, that's the seaport where he would be departing from, for he had taken a vow there. So notice verse 18, if you would, the language of transition, of embracing a new time to move forward. If you look in verse 18, it says there that Paul remained for a while, but then it came time for him to leave the brethren. He remained for a while, but then the time came for him to leave the brethren and to move on to the next thing. As a missionary and a church planner, specifically by calling, Paul would often relocate as God directed him to to move on to the next spot of ministry or the next location where he was to plant a church as the Lord would use him. And sometimes part of spiritual progress in all of our lives is going to need that we need to be willing to move at times on to the next thing. God may have us in a place for a season. God may have us doing something for a period of time, whether it's in a job, whether it's in a per certain maybe situation, maybe it's a geographic location. It could be, but the Lord has us kind of go through life at times with the changing of seasons. And sometimes the Lord will have us do something for a time period, but there may come a time where the Lord wants us to perhaps leave or to stop what we are doing in order to be able to move on to the next thing to step forward into the next maybe phase of life or season of spiritual growth the Lord has for us and that can be directly connected to us making spiritual progress or maybe to us helping someone else make spiritual progress that the Lord wants to use us to move forward the kingdom of God so we see Paul here in verse 18 leaving from the seaport of Centria, which was the seaport in the area of Corinth it says he sails across to Syria and notice verse 18 tells us that when he departs and leaves, it says Priscilla and Aquila were with him. That is, when he left on this next stage of ministry, he brings along Aquila and Priscilla. Now, we met this couple last week. Remember, they were a Jewish married couple who Paul met in the city of Corinth when he went there. And it says that Paul, through a set of circumstances, made connection with them he then lodged with them they gave him hospitality and more than that he actually then went to work either for them or together with them because they all had the same trade occupationally of being tent makers 
And through this relational connection that God established with Paul and this couple, Paul shared the Lord with them. They came to know Jesus. We know that took place. More than that, they ultimately become very good friends of Paul. We see that recorded all throughout the New Testament and actually partners in the work of the Lord and assistance in ministry. And so now Paul is departing from Corinth where he's been about a year and a half or two years ministering, serving the Lord, working together with Priscilla and Aquila, both no doubt some ways occupationally, but even more than that, the higher work of the kingdom of God. And as Paul now moves on to the next spot God's calling him to, he invites this couple to join them, join him in the next season of ministry. And apparently they embrace the invitation, they pack up, And they move with Paul because verse 18 says that they were now with Paul as he left from Corinth and moved on. Sensing the Lord wanted them to go with Paul to now give themselves to the higher work, which was not the work of tent making, but the work of the kingdom of God. And to me, this is a very beautiful example because for any married couple, it's tough, is it not, to make circumstantial transitions, to uproot, to move to a new location. It's tough for a married couple or family to make major transitions like that. Yet this couple here takes this first step of faith and willingness to put the Lord's work first in their life rather than making money through tent making or whatever else, you know, their own creature comforts. Well, we've gotten kind of comfort here in Corinth and they could have even argued, look, we just got driven out of where we were over in Italy and had to come over here to Corinth. We don't want to move again two years later, but instead they put the work of the Lord first before their own comfort or material needs. And this begins a wonderful process for this couple to be used very powerfully by the Lord. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. They become very effective in service for Christ. And how wonderful the example when any couple is willing, like this couple, to let their marriage relationship be something that's useful to the Lord. That as a couple like Priscilla and Aquila, we would let our marriage be something the Lord can use to advance his kingdom, to partner together in ministry, to serve the Lord together. No more wonderful thing that a married couple can do than on top of just having a household to actually let their family be used, their lives together as partners for the work of God's kingdom. And a beautiful thing to see this couple doing. Interesting that at the end of verse 18, the Holy Spirit also wants us to know that Paul was finishing fulfilling a vow that he had made before he left this area. You see the end of verse 18 there? It says before Paul left, he had his hair cut off. He got a haircut there at the seaport of Centria because he had taken a vow. So Paul had taken some vow of some sort and he ended that vow by getting a haircut before he left the seaport to head out over to the next location in Syria that he was heading towards. This likely indicates, most believe, probably potentially something like the Nazarite vow that we read about in the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6 speaks of the Nazarite vow that could be taken. The Nazarite vow was a voluntary vow. It was a willing vow of dedication that a worshiper could make to the Lord for some season in their life. So whether it was for you know, a month or for six months or whatever, you would make a voluntary vow unto the Lord, some personal thing you wanted to dedicate to God or Lord, I just want to make this vow of commitment to you. And for a short season, you'd maintain this voluntary willing vow. 
and as a way of indicating that outwardly you would allow your hair to grow during that time as a symbolic indication of that. And then as the vow was fulfilled and you came to the closure of that vow, you would then cut off your hair and burn it in the fire. And the purpose of that process was kind of removing the old hair was symbolic. You're now leaving behind the season of that prior time when you were in that vow and preparing for the next thing ahead. So Paul now comes to this place where he's coming to the end of this vow that he had made of dedication to the Lord in some way. And with a new haircut, he's ready for a new season now. He's ready to move on. So verse 19 tells us that he then came over to Ephesus as he sailed across and left them there. But he himself entered into the synagogue, verse 19, reasoning with the Jews. And when they then asked him to stay a longer time with them, there in Ephesus, he did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And then he sailed from Ephesus, departing from that location again. So here we see Paul's first visit to the city of Ephesus. And the first time he goes to Ephesus, we read in Acts chapter 18, it's just for a very brief season. He goes there, He briefly ministers for a short season, but then he departs not too long afterwards. He will then later, we'll see in Acts chapter 19, return back to the city of Ephesus after having done some other things for an extended period of ministry where Paul will actually stay longer, it seems, than any other location he went to. He's there for at least three years, it says, teaching the word of God in a school to a group of people there, the school of Tyrannus. So this is Paul's first time now coming to Ephesus. And Ephesus is one of the largest and most impressive cities in all of the area of Asia Minor. It was a major commercial center. It was famous for political and religious things. In fact, listen to the Holman Bible Dictionary's description of the city of Ephesus around this time. The Holman Bible Dictionary says this, and quote, it says, under the Romans, Ephesus thrived, reaching the pinnacle of its greatness during the first and second centuries of the Christian era. At the time of Paul, Ephesus was probably the fourth largest city in the world with a population estimated around 250,000. And during the reign of the emperor Hadrian, Ephesus was designated also the capital of the Roman province of Asia. The grandeur of the ancient city is evident in the remains which have been uncovered by archaeologists, including the ruins of the Temple of Artemis, the Civic Agora, the Temple of Domitian, gymnasiums, public baths, a theater seating 24,000 people, a library, and a commercial agora. So it's to this very large metropolitan city of Ephesus, Paul now goes, he establishes and plants, again, another church. We have the New Testament letter of Ephesians written to this church in Ephesus that gets established here. Now, verse 19 tells us when Paul goes to Ephesus, he began his ministry in the customary way that we've seen many, many times together now in the book of Acts. says, verse 19, when he went to that city, he himself entered the synagogue and he began to reason with the Jews. And this was Paul's pattern when he would go into cities. As a Jewish rabbi, 
from Jerusalem with that training and recognition. He would go to the synagogue of the Jews, knowing that had a basis of the Old Testament scriptures, some level of understanding of the ways of God from their Old Testament knowledge, the prophecies about a Messiah and a Savior that would be sent. And Paul knew when he went there, he'd be given occasion to speak as a visiting rabbi that was new to the area. And he'd use that then as a way to reason with the people from the Old Testament and to try and prove that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah, the one who God said that he would send to them as a savior. And through that process, typically the Holy Spirit would often illuminate some hearts within the synagogue and some Jews at times and God-fearing Greeks would indeed get saved. Many would be resistant, but a lot of times this beginning of a ministry would open up some doors and some converts would come to pass. It seems here that there was some favorable response towards Paul proclaiming Christ and salvation because look how verse 20 begins. It says, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them. Typically, when Paul would go to the synagogue and tell the people about Jesus, they would ask him to get out of town, right? <laughs> That's usually what we see. Sometimes they drag him out of town, stone him. Here, there must have been some favorable response where the Holy Spirit opened the hearts of some of the people that he spoke to because we see here that they actually asked Paul to continue with them and to keep teaching. It seems to me that some clearly began to get saved. And so now there's a spiritual appetite. They're hungry to understand more about the ways of the Lord Jesus Christ and how to live for him. And they want to increase in spiritual learning. They're liking what Paul's teaching them. And they say, Paul, please stay with us. Teach us more about this Jesus. Help us see more how the Old Testament speaks about him. And so they want Paul to further teach them the ways of God and the word of God. But verse 20 says that when they asked him to stay a longer time, look what it says. It says that Paul did not consent, but took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep the coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And then he sailed away from Ephesus. So even though they desired and even asked Paul to remain with them and to keep teaching them and ministering to them, it says here that Paul did not comply. The reason was because he apparently felt very strongly led of the Lord to be doing another thing at that particular time. You see there the language in Paul's answer to them. He says, look, I can't stay because I must. He had a sense of, of that he was compelled with an I must, he says, keep the coming feast in Jerusalem. That is, Paul had a strong sense that this was something the Lord was directing him to do. He had a strong conviction within, I really sense the Lord wants me to head to Jerusalem and to keep this upcoming feast. So there, I, for I can't comply and stay with you at this time. He wants to remain obedient to the Lord and the Lord's direction in his life, guiding him to the thing that he believes God wants him to do next. Now, taking human realities into consideration, I'm sure there was some emotional sadness for the people to hear that Paul wasn't going to stay, though they wanted him to. I'm sure there was emotional sadness for Paul as he loved the people he was ministering to, but he knew God's will had to be honored over human preferences over desires of people, maybe even of his own interests and over human feelings. Paul yielded to God's leading of his life 
rather than submitting and yielding to human pressure upon his life. Let me say that again. Paul was allowing himself to be led by God and what God wanted of his life and not being driven or directed by the human pressure and persuasion that was coming upon his life, even if it was in good intention. People saying, please stay, don't go. And look, folks, Paul's saying, I can't stay now. Instead, I have to go because Paul in some way seemed to be conscious of the reality this is not just the right time for me to be doing this. He says, I'm going to return again, God willing. I do want to come back. But what Paul was sensing was, I just don't think now is the right time for this. And let me just say, it takes spiritual wisdom and spiritual maturity to accept at times that now may not be the right time for something. That it just may not be the right time now for something specific. And to be able to be sensitive to that because Paul was willing to do that and not get held up, but move on. As a result, he kept moving forward spiritually in his life. And he actually in that trusted the Lord could work without him there in Ephesus and that he needed to be elsewhere. And ultimately that we see ends up being what's best for Paul. And it actually ends up being best for the people and for God's work to continue to move forward as the Lord continued to accomplish his purposes. And I yet love Paul's heart of love and wisdom. He says to these people in the midst of their disappointment, he says to them, verse 21, look, I will return again to you. He says, God willing. In other words, if God allows it, I want to come back, he says. I would like to come back and to be here again. And I desire and intend to do that. He says, but it's just a matter of if God allows it, if God permits it. And I love to see the example of Paul the Apostle here, and you see it throughout the New Testament as well. You note that Paul, he sought the Lord, he prayed, he asked God for direction, he got ideas that came to his mind, he had desires that came upon his heart. Paul would actually make plans, and he would actually pursue plans But yet in the midst of that, he also then yielded to God's will ultimately. So he'd pray, he'd ask the Lord for direction, he'd get ideas and desires, he'd plan things to do, he'd make plans. Yes, that's spiritual. He'd then actually pursue plans, but then he would just be yielded to letting God's sovereign will unfold circumstantially. And as things unfolded, he let that be a way that God at times would dictate to him Am I going to allow you to do this or am I going to shut the door down on you? And I think this is great wisdom here. Paul says, this is what I plan to do, God willing, if the Lord allows it to come to pass. And keep in mind, coming to Ephesus, which is in Asia, was a direct lesson of this very reality for Paul. Because if you remember back in Acts chapter 16, there Paul wanted to come to Asia, which is where Ephesus was. And it says, but the Holy Spirit forbid him and restricted him from going to Asia to preach the gospel a few years prior to this. Now, years later, what's happening? The Lord permits Paul to come back to the region and preach when the time was right for it. Back in Acts 16, the Holy Spirit forbid him from going there, but it wasn't a permanent closed door. That just wasn't the right time for it. Apparently now is, because now the door opens and here we see Paul ministering in this area and sometimes the lord at times will forbid something in our life maybe there's something the lord forbid in the past 
Maybe he closed the door in the past. Maybe he didn't allow something to take place at some point in the past. But look, the Lord may open that same door later on. Now he may permit it or down the road, he may open the door for that to come to pass if that's when the timing is right. So Paul understands specifically what he means for sure when he says, I will come again. It is what I plan to do. God willing, if the Lord permits it, then I'll pursue it and I'll walk through that very thing. And being willing to have that kind of hard attitude is necessary for our spiritual progress. Always keep these two things in balance. It is not good to be paralyzed and just never do anything and never attempt anything, right? I mean, you can't just sit there in a paralysis of analysis and over, you know, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. Okay, your prayer is now potentially maybe just disobedience. If you're praying, the last I read, the Bible says that God says, call upon me, Jeremiah 33, and God says, call upon me and he says and i'll answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know god speaks to us god wants to direct us if we're asking for direction god does direct us he gives us desires he gives us wisdom he opens and closes doors so we have to be careful that we don't err on the side of the paralysis of analysis and we never do anything because we're so hyper concerned we just might do something wrong and we can't do nothing but we also need to be careful on the other side of that, that we don't press forward too forcefully and think that, well, whether the doors close or not, I'm just going to kick the door down and, and we just, I'm going to do this and Lord bless it. And we just run forward a hundred miles an hour and there's roadblocks and restrictions and roadblocks and restrictions. And we're just trying to make something and we're striving in the flesh. That's not good either. What is good to keep things in balance you pray, you ask God for direction, you ask God for guidance, ideas and desires may come, make plans, be a good steward, responsibly pursue those plans, but then at the end of the day, always be yielded to God's ultimate will. See if God allows it to happen. Try it. See if it unfolds. See if the door opens, if the Lord permits it, and humbly realize we don't always know what the future holds and, and God may unfold things to show us, look, no, I, I don't want you to do that. And that's okay. That's how you learn. You got to try things and see what God may do. Walk forward in faith with just a loose grip and be open to redirection. Paul says to, Roman, to the Roman believers, Romans 1.10, one of the things I pray for is the opportunity God willing to come and see you at last. Paul says, I'm praying for an opportunity. God willing. If God would give me the opportunity. Praying for an open door. Praying for an opportunity. James chapter 4. Many of us know that famous passage. James 4 says, come now you who say today or tomorrow. We're going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to buy. We're going to sell. We're going to make a profit. James says, whereas you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time and vanishes away. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and do this and that. See, there's the balance. Nothing wrong with making plans. But he says, we should make plans in pencil and then give God the eraser. Make plans in pencil. Pursue your plans and say, if the Lord wills, this is, this is what we're going to do. We think the Lord's leading in this way. And this is what we see Paul doing, a very wise approach. So as Paul sails from Ephesus, it tells us, verse 19, again, that he left 
Priscilla and Aquila, this husband and wife, there in Ephesus. He left them behind. So either Paul asked them to stay in Ephesus and to keep ministering because he sensed he needed to leave, or maybe this couple sensed themselves that the Lord wanted them to stay regardless. The Lord's will was not for this couple to carry on with Paul as he left. So as they settle in, the Lord ends up using them there in Ephesus while he uses Paul going on to a few other things until he comes back. And I think there's a great lesson in this because you see Aquila and Priscilla being used greatly by the Lord in Ephesus at the end of the chapter. You see Paul move on and Paul ends up being used by the Lord. And to me, this is a great example in the Bible because sometimes part of spiritual progress involves doing what God's directing you to do, as I said earlier. And sometimes that means even if the desires and requests of other people are that you would do something different that you instead listen to the Lord and you obey the Lord. This is a fitting example of both sides of that. They wanted Paul to what? Stay. And Paul sensed that he wasn't supposed to say and keep doing the same thing, that he was to move on to what God was telling him to do. Aquila and Priscilla, rather than moving on and going with Paul and assuming doing new things is always what God wants us to do, they sense no. God wants us to stay right where we're at and keep doing what we're doing and be faithful and stay here. And they didn't go with Paul when Paul left. And both of them were willing to listen to what God's will was for their own life. We all have to learn how to hear, folks, from God for ourselves and what God is telling us to do and how he is leading us in our life. And we have to have faith to obey God's will despite what the ideas and, and you know, opinions of others may be. And sometimes in order to move forward in spiritual life, you almost have to be willing to have the courage at times to emotionally maybe sometimes disappoint other people in order to please the Lord and to follow what he is leading in your life. Be very careful, let me caution you, of letting your life be driven and directed by doing what everybody else wants. You are a servant of Christ. You are a follower of Jesus. And you know as well as I do, much of life includes stuff like what? Hey, we want you to. Hey, you should. We think that you should. And, and, and all these kind of things. You know, why don't you? And, and fill in the blanks. We all do that to each other. And we have to be very careful that at times that we have the courage and enough love for Jesus and faith to be able to say no to other people so that sometimes we can say yes to the Lord. And sometimes that's necessary. It's not just people persuading you to sin. Sometimes it's just people trying to give you an opinion or pressuring you to do something that's their idea. It may not be God's idea. No is a healthy answer. You've got to learn how to say no sometimes if you're going to say yes to the Lord. And Paul here, Aquila and Priscilla, I think maybe in the same way. Maybe Paul might have, we don't know, Paul might have said to them, hey, you guys want to come again? You know what, Paul? No. We appreciate you invite us to come here to Ephesus, but this time, Paul, no, we don't think we should come with you. And they remain behind and God works all those things out in a good way. Verse 22 
tells us really the close of Paul's second missionary journey. It says, and when he then landed over at Caesarea, back in the area of Israel now, he then gone up and greeted the church and he went down to Antioch. So verse 22 brings us to the closure of Paul's second missionary journey after a few years out sharing the gospel, establishing new churches, teaching the word of God to help people. He now lands back at the seaport of Caesarea and returns, verse 22 says, back to the area of Antioch, which remember was where his sending church was, the church of Antioch. This is Paul's home church. So he comes back to his home church. Like other times, no doubt, he probably gave report of what God had done through their ministry efforts and the missions works abroad. Then verse 23 says, and after he had then spent some time there with the church at Antioch, he departed again. This marks the third missionary journey of Paul the Apostle, which will carry us through the next section in the book of Acts. He now starts out, maybe it was months, maybe it was a year, we don't know. He now heads back out on his third missionary journey. He departed. Verse 23 says he went over to the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So as with the second trip, the first intention on Paul's heart, do you see what it is? It's follow-up ministry. He basically retraces his steps that he went on on the second missionary journey back through Galatia and the areas he had been through before, going back in order, retracing his steps, visiting once again the same people who he had shared the gospel with, people who had gotten saved, where churches had been established and were now new congregations growing. And he goes back in order, retracing his steps, visiting the same areas with the intention, verse 23 says, that he went to those areas strengthening all the disciples, doing what he could to teach more of God's word, to further counsel, to serve and minister in order to help get these believers stronger in their relationship with the Lord, to strengthen the disciples. He invested in their spiritual lives to build them up that they might be stronger spiritually. And I love the example the New Testament gives to us in this way of Paul the Apostle because you, you see Paul, I mean, here is this, I mean, giant of a man spiritually who was used so incredibly of the Lord to plant churches, to share the gospel, to pastor congregations. And you notice that Paul was not just content with conversions alone. Paul knew that Jesus said that they were to make disciples, not just convert souls. Certainly, it's wonderful to people to get saved, and that's the first step towards discipleship, to experience salvation, to come to know Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe the ways that I've spoken to you about and we've talked about before. A disciple is a term that refers to a committed follower of a master who learns continually the ways of his master so that he might follow and live just like his master. That's what a disciple is. And Jesus said, go make disciples. He didn't say go make converts. He said, go make disciples, strong, fruitful, faithful, committed followers of Jesus and the focus of Paul's ministry was to bring forth mature committed believers 
That, that, that was Paul's heart. He wanted to see people mature in the Lord, ministering, that progress was made, that they would grow and that they would mature in the things of God. And that's why he repeatedly invested in the same people all the time. Because he realized discipleship was a process. I need to keep strengthening those disciples so that they become strong and healthy followers of Jesus. Always remember, ladies and gentlemen, one of the fundamental purposes of the church, the local church, beyond worshiping the Lord, is also to function in a manner as a church where we make strong disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. People who are mature. Ephesians 4 speaks of the function of the church and why God gives certain anointed, gifted individuals within the church. It describes it. Listen to Ephesians 4. It says that Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now listen, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and to a greater knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature, complete man, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning, crafty, deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may, listen, grow up. In all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what the New Testament teaches is the function of the church. A lot of believers, in, what's the function of the church? To convert souls. Not really from a New Testament perspective. It's to make disciples. That includes converting souls, but it's to make disciples. It's not just how many people can we get to pray a prayer at an end of a service. How many times can we put, you know, scalps or notches on our belt? Hey, we got another, we got another person. We can listen, but if somebody just comes forward and they pray a prayer and they're either A, not genuinely converted because it was just emotional pressure to respond for some reason and they didn't even really understand what they were doing or we never help them grow and progress and become a strong, healthy, stable, mature believer, we're missing the whole point of what Jesus wanted. He wanted mature believers who would grow and progress. Well, the lens now shifts the last few verses of the chapter away from Paul and his ministry and focuses on Ephesus where he left his good friends there in the area of Ephesus. Look at verse 24. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. That man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, and he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla, who were still there, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Amen. Take notice, here now we begin to see why the Lord kept this couple in Ephesus. And this is probably just one snapshot of many ways the Lord used them in Ephesus to help disciple other people spiritually, to help people grow and progress spiritually. 
The Lord's using them. And in this account, we see they helped a man who had great spiritual potential for ministry to grow and progress and even become more effective. The last verses will tell us in his service to the Lord. The man's name, we're told in verse 24, was Apollos, who had recently come to the area of Ephesus. And Apollos was a Jew, just like Priscilla and Aquila were. And as he comes to that area, says that he was a man originally, verse 19 tells us, or excuse me, verse uh, 24, that was born at Alexandria and then had now come to Ephesus. Now, the Holy Spirit wants us to know his birthplace, not only for just geographical reasons, but probably the impact that it had upon his life being born in that area. Alexandria was the second largest city in Roman Empire at that time, second only to Rome. And it was a place that was an incredible center of education and learning in the ancient world. It boasted a library, historians say, of over 700,000 volumes. Now, that's in a day before the printing press. How do you get a copy of a book? 700,000 volumes? You want to talk about a people who loved education? And there was a massive population, even within the area of Alexandria, that was dominated by Greek culture. There was also a large Jewish population in the area of Alexandria. In fact, it's believed that it is from the Jews in Alexandria who were very learned in scripture that we have produced what we know as the Septuagint, which is basically the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures from the Jews in Alexandria who brought forth those things. So this is Apollos' heritage, a guy who was steeped in all this learning. And notice the Holy Spirit gives some favorable compliments to Apollos here, things that we as well should aspire towards. One of the things it tells us about in verse 24 is that he was mighty in the scriptures. That is, he was somebody who knew the scriptures well. He had a firm grasp on the Old Testament and knew God's word thoroughly. Oh, that I might become someone that's mighty in the scriptures. Oh, that you might become someone who's strong and mighty in the scriptures, that you have a good, strong knowledge of God's word and you understand it and how to utilize it for yourself and helping others. Verse 25 tells us about Apollos as well, that he was fervent in spirit, that he was very passionate, a man of deep convictions. He wasn't apathetic about spiritual things, about God. Instead, he was greatly zealous for spiritual matters, the things of the Lord. He spoke and he lived with passion regarding God and God's word. He was fervent in spirit. Romans 12 says that we too should be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. That, that we should be passionate, enthusiastic. We, we shouldn't be Christians who are you know, kind of yawning and half asleep in our spiritual lives. We should have a healthy fervency, a healthy passion. We're passionate about all kinds of stuff. People are passionate about their careers, passionate about exercise. You know, if some people would exercise or their lives spiritually to the same degree they exercise themselves physically, one is gracious. We'd have Arnold Schwarzenegger Christians. I mean, just, I mean, it would be incredible. So if we're passionate about all these other things, nothing wrong. We should be passionate about the Lord, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, passionate about those things. We read of Apollos as well, that he apparently was a very gifted communicator. Verse 24 says he was an eloquent man. That is, he was a gifted communicator. He had a way with using words. 
He was able to use words and communicate in a powerful way. He was just gifted by God to keep the attention of his listeners and speak in a manner that was very helpful and eloquent that other people could understand. And he also, verse 26 says, when he came to the synagogue, he spoke with boldness. So he had great confidence. He spoke without reservation. He was eloquent and a very bold speaker as well when he shared So all these great combination of attributes exist to be used by the Lord. But notice there was one drawback in Apollos' life. Though he was a great teacher, fervent, passionate, he knew the Bible very well, yet his message was still incomplete at this time. Because verse 25 says, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord being fervent in spirit and spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he only knew the baptism of of John. Now, exactly what that's referring to, I don't know if we can be 100% certain. The baptism of John, of course, was the baptism that John first brought, preparing people to look forward to the Messiah, telling people, hey, get ready, repent of your sin, the kingdom of God's at hand. The Lamb of God is going to take away the sin of the world, and, and he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So knowing what he had learned, it says he was speaking and teaching Accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John, the idea is it seems to infer there was still something missing in his theology at this point. There were some gaps in his theology a little bit, and he needed a little more light and clarity to fill in some of the details. There were some other things that had transpired that he wasn't fully acquainted with yet. And Aquila and Priscilla, seeing this great potential, wanting to help him progress spiritually, Verse 26 says that when they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, I love this example here. What a beautiful picture of loving informal discipleship with one person. This older, more mature, if you would, spiritually couple in the Lord, they take this man, Apollos, aside, help disciple and mentor him as one person to make progress spiritually, and they invest into him in just informal, one-on-one loving discipleship. They help explain some things to him to help him grow and progress spiritually. Notice how they did it. It says they took him aside and explained the way of the Lord miraculously. They didn't rebuke him in the middle of his sermon in the synagogue and say, ah, you're missing something. They took him aside lovingly, graciously. They took him aside and they kindly and respectfully offered some guidance and correction. And what a great example, folks, for all of us. That value of one-on-one discipleship. Maybe we see somebody that needs a little help progressing spiritually in their walk with the Lord. Maybe they need some guidance or a little correction in their theology or their understanding and that we would take them aside and through loving and formal discipleship, help people to make progress spiritually and help them to understand maybe a little bit more accurately what they need to know. And apparently it was very effective and impactful and God used it Because verse 27 says, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, back the area of Corinth, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. For he then, look at it says, vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So at some point, 
after a time of being invested in there in Ephesus, Apollos has a desire now to want to go over to the area of Achaia, which was where Corinth was, which was where Aquila and Priscilla had just lived at for a season of time and where they have connections. So, hey, you want to go over there and minister at the church of Corinth? Great. Let us write you a letter. We'll write a letter and tell the disciples there to receive you. And they use their relational connection to kind of speak on his behalf so he would be welcomed freely and have access to enter right into ministry there. And amazing, again, how God can use things even like relationship connections sometimes to help us progress and move forward spiritually. It was those relationship connections. They say, hey, look, when this guy gets there, he's a solid guy. Listen to what he says. And because he was humble enough to be discipled and taught further, he becomes very fruitful in his ministry. Verse 27 tells us that he further strengthened the believers. It says those who believed through grace. I like that description of believers. Those who believed, verse 27, through grace. We're not just saved by grace. We believed in Jesus Christ through the grace of God doing a miraculous work to change our heart. Thank goodness the grace of God opened my eyes. Thank goodness the grace of God prompted me to believe upon Jesus. And when it says Apollos got there, he greatly helped the believers. He started teaching them and he was way more effective in his pastoral ministry. He was way more influential in his ability to communicate and teach the word of God. And not only that, he became a way more effective evangelist and apologist to defend the faith. It says verse 28 that he was vigorously refuting publicly the Jews, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he became much more proficient to defend the faith, to show from the scriptures in the Old Testament, hey, this is how I can prove to you Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. No doubt leading more souls to the Lord, helping people to see more clearly. You know, a few final thoughts. Let me say this. First of all, there are a lot of ways to help people to progress spiritually. Informal discipleship, corporate gatherings, teaching Bible studies with groups of people, seeking to lead other people to the Lord. Look for ways to help people to grow spiritually. And like Apollos, you never know. You might invest in one Apollos who may end up being able to have a powerful influence with lots of other people. Invest in one, you may impact hundreds. You never know. And finally, I would say for our own lives, it's a willingness to remain humble and teachable and learn from those who are more mature spiritually sometimes. That can be one of the most helpful things to grow spiritually. Because Apollos was willing to be teachable in his spiritual walk, it really helped him grow spiritually. And the same applies for us. This morning, ask yourself, have you slowed down spiritually? Have you stopped making progress, maybe altogether spiritually? If so, my exhortation to us this morning today, let's make a decision. Let's make a commitment to spiritual progress, personally and collectively as a congregation. Let's stand together. Let's pray.